uh, let's slow down and I'm going to walk us through Psalm 19, a psalm of David. This is one of my favorites. I hope if it's not, it becomes one of yours too. Starts, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day pours forth speech and night after night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language. Their words are not heard. Their voice has gone out to all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In them he's placed a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his chamber. Like a strong man, he rejoices to run his race. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its setting to the other, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The law of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, perfect forever. And the commandments, sorry guys, I am having trouble with this. The judgment of God is true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, honey from the comb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden transgression. Keep me back also from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I shall be blameless and acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. hope you have a study sheet. We're going to work through Psalm 19 this morning. C.S. Lewis said of this psalm, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. David Gruzik, in his commentary from Blue Letter Bible online says, This psalm reflects more than any other the beauty and splendor of the Hebrew poetry found in the Psalter. What we'll see this morning is that Psalm 19, David marvels at the greatness of God's work in creation. Breaks down three ways. This is the way we'll take it. Then he looks at the greater work of God in his word. And that's also that he can consciously cooperate with God's great work in his own soul. So we're in the third lesson of five in the Bless the Lord, O My Soul study in Psalms. We'll be in Psalm 19. When Mark brought this up as a possible theme quite a bit earlier in the year, uh, each of us was going to think of a psalm we wanted to teach. Now, no necessary rhyme or reason, but as soon as he said a psalm, guys, I didn't even pray about it. I just thought I want to teach on Psalm 19, and I don't even know why. Now, on one hand, it is one of my favorite psalms, I'm a visual guy, and this is very visual. The front half, of course, is it's what you see in the sky. It's part of your day-to-day. I can envision it. Um, The other is this, uh, as you go through it, you can hear the metrics, sort of its great literature, its great poetry. 
before we go through this this morning, I would just encourage you, if you haven't already, to pick one psalm, which just means it's a song, one psalm and make it your own. And you can do that a number of ways. For sure, you'd read it repeatedly. You can pick the shortest song you can find if you want, make it easy, or you could pick a longer one. But you generally want to start with something that for you is of particular interest. So you'd read it, read it every day for a week at least. You could outline it if you're given to that, or you could at least determine what's the major flow of thought. What are the big rocks in this song? You can look up the key words. You've been learning some of these study options in the Sunday school classes. You can do that with this. You can memorize parts of it or all of it. But take just one song and make it your own. You'll be better for it. And I hope, if nothing else, this series helps you to do that. We're going to work through this in three sections. And guys, everything David brings up on the front end is, is for the purpose of the final of the three points. So he's going to tell us a number of things, but we're always leading to, to the third point. There's a, a method in the madness. So if you've got your Bibles, we're in Psalm 19. It's the only place we'll be this morning. Feel free to turn there. In the first six verses, David's pulling us into this theme by drawing our attention to the perfect work of God in creation, specifically the skies. So he's covering both the night sky and then the day sky. So you remember in the ancient world, there's no street lights, no security lights, yard lights, etc. For the ancients, the night sky was a given. They were familiar with it in ways that we are not. If you're in the city, if you're anywhere near a, cent a city center, we have so much radiant light that it's almost impossible to see what they saw as a given every night. I can tell you, even in Topeka, because I grew up here, you can see far fewer stars in the night sky in this city now than you could when I was a boy in the previous century, Jim. Yeah. So... They could take some things for granted. You know, if you talk about constellations, <clears throat> excuse me, in the night sky today, many people don't even know. You've got to be purposeful to get out and see the jewels and the jewelry God's put in the sky for us because city lights, the lesser lights that men have made are occluding the greater lights that are simply further away in the sky that God made for us and that are meant to display His glory. To the ancients, these would have been as familiar as the streets in our neighborhoods. And those constellations, remember, as they come through the seasons of the year, you would have known them as intimately as the friends or neighbors that you saw simply walking home from their day at work in the fields. This was a given. So they would have looked up. By the way, is there anyone in here who hasn't seen the thread of the Milky Way in the night sky? You can't see it in town. You have to be elsewhere. But the glories of the night sky, you can just look night after night, and they're great. And even in town, if you take a pair of binoculars, doesn't matter how weak they are or how good, if you just look up, if you can find Cygnus the swan still up in the evening sky, Cygnus flies in the Milky Way, in the strip of the Milky Way. If you put a pair of binoculars on, you'll see stuff that you didn't know was there because the lights occlude it. But it is glorious and God put it there as part of the testimony to His perfections related to His works in creation. Uh, look at verses 1 through 4 here. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims 
His handiwork. And by the way, what I recited was Mike's transliterated versions. This is ESV. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Uh, ESV reads this way. There's no speech. There are not words whose voice is not heard. That second half of verse 3 makes it sound like their voice is heard. If you read NASB, it says exactly the opposite. They can't be heard with the ear. It's not that the words and the communication aren't taking place, but your ear doesn't hear them. So verse 4, their voice in NASB says their line goes out. It's like a line of text is written across the night sky in the glories of what God has done and their words to the end of the world. By the way, isn't this interesting? You remember when we developed technology and the the Jacques Cousteau's and others, they go under the water and they realize that whales are singing underwater all the time and you'll hear these eerie recordings and you realize there's something audible going on that you couldn't hear before. But that's going on now in the stars too, isn't it? Because there's radio waves. The heavens literally are declaring the glory of God through radio waves and you can listen to them now. You can hear the background sound to the universe if you've got the right radio receiver the heavens are literally if you will through radio waves at least are declaring the glory of God Paul picks this same theme up when he writes Romans 1 19 and 20 I'm sure he has in mind either Psalm 19 or Psalm 33 or one of the other creation type Psalms because he's reflecting on how fully creation itself is testifying to God and the perfection of God's work. He says what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it. His invisible attributes, His power, His nature are clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So when we see the night sky, and as we'll see here in a minute, the sun, God has always meant that those observations remind us who God is and what He's like. His power, His omnipotence, His absolute holiness, His distinction from us as part of His creation. So He moves from the night sky and then He goes to the day sky because He takes up the theme of the sun. So He's now talking about that great light that forms our universe day by day. And He says He's like a bridegroom that can't wait to enter the day of His wedding. Anybody here remember the, the morning of their wedding? Did you have any problem getting up? <laughs> There's that thought of, you couldn't hold me back, right? I'm ready. The day has arrived, I'm ready. And David's writing that anthropomorphically. He says the sun is like this force, this bridegroom or this strong man, this trained athlete. You couldn't hold him back. That sun is going to rise like someone who's absolutely motivated. You know, it was part of paganism, but the Greeks saw the sun as Helios, and they saw him as this golden-faced person in a chariot with these fiery steeds driving across the sky. It's the same imagery about this is a force you can't restrain. It's going to happen every day. In fact, you think of Genesis Uh, after the flood, God promised the seasons and sunlight and and all the things that you see, the glories of creation, they're going to continue with no more floods in the future. So look at verses 5 and 6. He says, The sun comes out like a bridegroom, leaves his chamber. He's a strong man. He's a trained athlete. He's running his course. He rises from one end of the heavens. He goes all the way to the other. 
and there's nothing hidden from his heat. Now, David could have just talked about the night sky. That's the, for me, the night sky, that's the glorious aspect of creation if I'm thinking of just the skies. But he brings up the sun specifically because if you remove the sun, and I know we're a solar system, we're a sun-based system, but if you took the sun out of the planets that are here, there would be no life. You have no life without the sun. So the sun gives us light to see, warmth to live by. It gives us harvests and seasons. Paul talks about this in Acts 17. Without the sun, there's no life at all. So David is now starting to hedge us towards the value of God's word because in bringing up the sun, he says, you don't have the sun, you have no life. And because he's going to transition next to the perfection of God's work in his word, he's moving us that direction when he brings up the sun because guys, without the truth and the value of God's word, you and I have no spiritual life. The sun is the source of all of that that comes through. And David's moving us towards seeing the perfection of God in his word. So David turns his eyes from there to God's word. You see this starting in verse 7. Guys, when we walk through these, I'm going to do Mike's version of an amplified Bible so that we get the sense of each of these six sayings that come out related to God in creation. So six different words and descriptions so that just as the sun rules over the earth and everything in the earth is affected by it, everything depends on the sun for life. David's essentially saying just so with God's word. It touches on everything and apart from his word, we cannot know real life. And here's something too. When David writes, how much of the scriptures does he have? So the first thing he's going to talk about is the law. That's the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. He has none of the New Testament. And he's lacking most of what we call the Old Testament, right? So he's got the Torah. He's probably got all or parts of Joshua, Judges, his own family lineage in Ruth. And he's probably got some or all of Samuel. That's all he's got. He waxes on about the perfections of God's word with a fraction of what you and I have in our Bible today. That that portion of God's word to David was sublime. It was better than anything else. And you and I have that times 10 or whatever you want to say. We have the completed version of God's word today. What David saw in the partial word of God he had, you and I should have this sense of exuberance and joy because we have all of it. If you sat me down for a meal and I have a square meal, that's great. If you say, and by the way, I've got dessert and coffee, I get more. I have more to enjoy. That's the thought we should have as well. Look at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So the Torah of Yahweh, it has no fault. It's whole. It's entire. It's all that it should be and nothing it shouldn't be. And it says it restores the soul. ESV says it revives the soul. The Hebrew word there, shub, it means to go back. So God's word has the ability to restore you and me when we have fallen or when we've been displaced from the better place God had us before. It restores us. It brings us back. Psalm 23.3, the psalm Kent will conclude the series on in November tells us in part what God does. So the Lord is my shepherd. He, in part, he restores my soul. 
And Psalm 19 tells us one of the most significant ways God does that. It's God's word. It's the law of the Lord that restores my soul. When you and I find ourselves out of sorts for whatever reason, it could be any one of a number of things. We could be distraught, depressed, anxious. We could feel like the floor's fallen out of our life. The bottom's fallen out. Whatever it is, David says God's word will restore your soul. You'll have a sense of life again. You'll have a sense of peace again. You'll have a sense of joy again if you'll hang out in God's word. And if you've done this, you know it's true. And yet one of the things we find is we usually want least the thing we need most. So if the bottom's fallen out, I may just want to wallow in my depression. That's really when I need God's word more than ever. And if I'll hang out in his word, David says, I'll be restored. Second half of that verse says the testimony of the Lord is sure and it makes wise the simple. The testimony is what God has written. It's the tablets. It's the law. It's God's word transcribed. And it's interesting. The Hebrew for sure is what we would say is amen. It's yes. I think the Greeks must have taken from the Hebrew. It means yes. It's sure. You can count on it. It's faithful. And it makes wise. It gives still it gives skill. Excuse me to the simple guys when we use the term simple today we often means it's not complicated but when you read that in the wisdom literature in the bible you do not want to be simple it means you're morally naive it means you don't know what you should know it means you are incapable of living life in a way that pleases god and skillfully in such a way that it blesses you and those around you alan ross says this wisdom literature is designed to teach people how to live their lives skillfully in moral and spiritual matters so that in the final analysis <clears throat> excuse me they produce something honoring to God and useful for the community the negative inference is if you and I don't make God's word our own we are morally inept we don't have the skill set to live life in a way that honors God blesses us and blesses others the wisdom to need The wisdom needed to make sinners think like saints is in God's word. Our mind has to be renewed. The wisdom needed to turn fools into philosophers in an appropriate way is in God's word. And the knowledge of what's holy and noble and true such that we should focus on it. And also the other things that God shuns that we should shun. The knowledge for all that, the skill, the wisdom for all of that is in God's word. Like the earth without the sun Apart from God's word, we are doomed to spiritual naivete and folly. With God's word, we have the wisdom of the ages and the skill to please God and live life well. Guys, this applies to everything. In fact, if you just hang out in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, you'll see it's all about not only honoring God, knowing who God is and honoring him, but it's the skill to live life in a way that's good. It's not a a thing of taking joy away. It's a way to have a joy-filled life the skill look at verse 8 the precepts of the lord are right they rejoice the heart precepts are those things that god has appointed or determined and they are morally upright they give gladness to the heart Um, i hope you guys are all in one of the home groups in the church because so much good stuff occurs in them so last week in our home group We had, I thought, one of the best discussions our home group has ever had 
And it was on Bill Bider's teachings from Psalm 51 from last Sunday. And we were talking about joy. One of Bill's key points was that we have joy as believers that comes from knowing we're saved. The knowledge of salvation gives us joy. Well, that's what this says. The scripture gives us not only the knowledge of salvation so that we have that joy, but it also gives us the rest of the knowledge you and I need so that we can rejoice, so that we have joy and the strength that joy brings for living well. God's word gives us a message of salvation and then it gives us joy in all the other arenas of life because it tells us what's morally right. It tells us how to live the way God always meant us to. The rest of that verse says the commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes and and pure means unadulterated. It's singular. It's only one thing and it's pure in what it is. It's God's word and fully God's word and it gives light or it's it's shining in its brightness. Uh, If you think of the uh, if I look straight into the sun, I can't see anything else. I'm blinded for anything else because the light of the sun is so pervasive. Well, there's a sense in which God's word is like looking into the blinding light of the sun. When I've seen it, I'm spoiled for everything else. The light of the sun is the light I can focus on. It'll fill my life, fill my mind up, just that solitary light. But also, if the light of the sun is behind me, it lights everything around me. By the light it shines, I can see what's in the world around me. And you've got verses like Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure like silver refined, purified seven times. You've got Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word is this ultimate light to gaze into and to be spoiled for everything else. But it's also the light that lets us see everything else in the world such that we can navigate and negotiate the life God means us to the way he means us to. And I love the phrase from Newton's hymn, I once was lost, but now I'm found. And he said, I once was blind, but now I see. God's word has entered my life. God's word informs my thoughts. I can now see in ways I could not see before. Verse 9 says, The fear of the Lord is clean, it endures forever. Uh, The dread of Yahweh, and this word for clean is what's used typically for ceremonial. God's word is so pure it can stand as it is in God's presence, so to speak. Remember, if, if something was unclean, it couldn't come before God. He's holy and he's clean. Well, God's word is like himself. It's entirely clean and it stands forever. Now, fear of the Lord is a description of what happens for us, Lord willing, when we read God's Word. But David uses it as a title for God's Word. So he calls God's Word what God's Word does. And he says God's Word gives us the fear of God. <clears throat> fear of God as a concept today is not... It sounds strange, but you remember in Scripture... <clears throat> excuse me. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. If I don't start with this holy reverence and awe and dread. Guys, if if this uh, building caught on fire and you were right in the middle and there's no escape, 
you would be in dread and fear of that fire. Now, the fire has no will. The fire has no motive of ill towards you, anything like that. But the fire has power to consume you and you know it and you feel its heat. Well, David says when we read God's word and we get some little bitty sense of how big and awesome he is, we realize we're confronted with a fire, with a power, with a potentially consuming force that we don't have the least ability to affect. The fear of the Lord, when Scripture, when people see God, they fall out, they fall down. You can't stand in God's presence unless He lets you. In fact, we don't take a breath without God letting us take a breath. We live at His pleasure. But there's this sense that when I get a hold of God's Word, I see how lofty and holy God is, and I realize how unlike God in some significant ways I am, and I have an appropriate fear of God. I should have that. David has that. We should get the same thing. And it endures forever. So God's Word teaches us to fear God. Then look at the last half of verse 9. The rules of the Lord are true, and they are righteous altogether. A true, true is an interesting word. It's translated different ways in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's truth. Sometimes it's faithful or faithfulness when you read in the old testament and it says god is uh, 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 loyal and he's true it's those uh, two hebrew words kesed and emeth and that's what this is this is emeth it's faithful you can count on it. it's not just true as a fact it's faithful it'll never change you can always count on it and it's just entirely so those are six descriptions David is just tearing this thing apart, so by one aspect and another, he's sharing with us how valuable God's Word is. Started with creation to say God's done it well, moves to God's Word, and concluding after he's looked at God's Word, he says, verse 10, more to be desired than gold, than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You remember in the ancient world, Less so today because wealth is made up of all kinds of things. But empires, nations, kingdoms rose and fell just to get gold. Because with gold you could buy anything. It never tarnishes. You know, it never goes bad. Gold was the value system of the world. In some ways, we might say money or wealth today. But David says God's word is so valuable that it's more valuable than any material possession or any material wealth you could ever imagine or envision. If you said, uh, I've got great IRAs, I've got great commissions, I've invested in futures, you know, I've got access to Bill Gates' bank account, you could have all that. And David says, if you don't have the value of God's word, you've got nothing. Jesus trades on this in the New Testament, doesn't he? When he says, if you've got all the wealth of the world and that's all you've got, you've got nothing. So David says, this is you guys, most of us work hard for a living, don't we? How hard do we work at at living in God's word? If if what David said is true, and I hope we believe him. If God's word is better than any material wealth, do we labor, do we give ourselves to know and take in and think about and meditate and live out 
God's word like we would any other labor that produces far, far lesser results. He also says uh, it's sweeter than honey. This is sort of getting to the taste, you know. Um, in the ancient world, they didn't have many spices, depending on your wealth or where you lived or when. You didn't have a lot of spices. Food was much more bland. And you certainly didn't have refined sugar. So honey, for David, is the epitome of something to taste and to savor. You know, elsewhere in Psalms it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, that's the thought here with God's Word. David says, if you taste God's Word, if you consume it, you'll realize that nothing else tastes as good as God's Word. Nothing else is as satisfying to your soul and your mind and your intellect and your affections as God's Word is. It's like the sweetest thing you could ever eat, but this is spiritual food. Better than gold and better than honey. So with just a fraction of God's Word, <coughs> excuse me, David sets us up for the last thing that he wants to cover. And everything goes towards this third point. You could have a complete song and it would end right where we've been. So it would say God's work in creation is perfect and it would say God's work in His Word is perfect and that would be great. But, but all of this psalm is going to the third point. So if you look at verse 11, by your word, your servant is warned and in keeping your word, there's great reward. This, this all ends up for David at application. Not just knowledge of, not just enjoyment of, but application. So your servant's warned, there's reward. Guys, in this day of uh, advertising and promises, if someone told you and you knew it was not a scam, it wasn't a scam, it wasn't clickbait, you, you know this person, you've seen the results, you know it's true, and they said, I can guarantee you, I can remove suffering and sorrow from your life. I can promise you a richer, fuller, better life than you ever thought possible before. Do you think people would be open to that? And I think they would. We, we spend money on vitamins and doctors and, and financial opportunities, one thing and another, because we hope they improve our life. And David says that God's Word removes unnecessary suffering from our life. It warns us things to avoid. And it gives us rewards we cannot get otherwise. That's the promise. That's a good promise. Based on everything that he said, he asked God three things. And that's where we close. He asked God for forgiveness. He asked God to keep him from his own proud desires to sin. And he asked God ultimately to make God's work in David as perfect and complete as it is in his word and as it is in creation. Look at verse 12. He says, who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults. This is a little bit like a dog chasing its tail. This is circular a bit. David says, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. I think this develops something like this. David says, you and I have sins that we're unaware of. So probably in David's life, something like this happened. He's living life. He thinks he's doing fine. 
he sees something in God's word, maybe like the kings were supposed to, maybe he's writing out the Torah, who knows. He sees something, and when he sees it, he realizes, I'm sinning, I'm falling short of God's measure because I've just seen from God's word that I'm doing something or I'm not doing something that God wanted me to. And suddenly he realizes, in my ignorance, I was sinning. So maybe he confesses his sin in that moment and moves on. But, but there's a second light that comes on too, right? David can now say to himself, as you and I probably have too, I thought I was okay, and now I realize I wasn't. And if it was true of that one singular element in my life, I wonder if it's true in other elements of my life too. And we would say, well, yeah, it is. So David's come to the realization, I sin and I don't even know it. I'm doing things that don't please God or I'm not giving myself to the things God means me to and I'm not even aware of it. So he says to God, Lord, would you forgive me for those sins, those unintentional sins of omission or commission? Would you forgive me of those sins that I'm not even aware of yet? Because he doesn't want to be alienated from God. And sin drives us away from that fellowship with God. David says, please forgive me for the sins I don't even realize I'm committing. Psalm 119.9 is a reference on your sheet. And, you know, in the, uh, the evolution of the life of a Christian, if you will, when we hear the gospel at some point, we realize God says, I'm holy and you're not. I'm life and you're in death. You're, you sin and you need me. You need reconciliation. So that first response from us is, we hear the gospel and we trust in Christ. We say, yep, I can't save myself. God has sent Jesus to die for my sins. Atone for, more the language of the temple or the offerings, covering my sin with Jesus' blood. Jesus' blood doing that for me. And I'm right with God. So I've been reconciled. My sins are covered. I'm not a stranger and an alien. Now I'm a child. This is great. But then as God's child growing up in his household, the same thing comes up. I realize, oh, I've sinned again. And then it's 1 John 1, 9. I confess my sin. My relationship is restored because God forgives me again. We, we get on with life. But David realizes sin is a, is a constant part of his life. He wants to deal with the known and the unknown. Now he says in verse, six, uh, verse 13, <clears throat> keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Don't let them have dominion over me. This didn't always apply in David's life, did it? As Bill's message in Psalm 51 told us. So he says, God, don't let me rise up in pride and insolence and intentionally do what I know I shouldn't or refuse to obey me when I know what you're calling me to. Lord, keep me from myself and my own sinful tendencies don't let me do that. Keep me, restrain me when my pride, my own self-will would otherwise take me places you don't want me to go. It's probably never happened to anyone here, but for some people, you'll, there's a temptation, and as we're entertaining the temptation, we say to ourselves something like, I know this isn't what I should do, but I keep entertaining the temptation so that at the end of the day, I end up doing what I knew all along. God says, don't do it. Don't do it. So David's saying, the sins I'm not aware of, God, would you cover them for me? And then he says, Lord, and by the way, would you also keep me from my tendency to simply proudly, arrogantly do what I want instead of what you want? 
And his conclusion there is, then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And that's what he wants. Because remember, this is all about the perfection of God's work in creation and the Word so that the perfection of God's work is ultimately seen in David's own life. And that's where he ends at verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So, what I say, what I do, what's external in my life, and what's going on from within, Lord, would your word have its effect so that I do outside what you want me to do, so that I'm thinking inside what you want me to think, so that inside my soul and outside in my actions, I'm the perfect work of God. Your word has had its perfect work in me so that I am blameless like you. I'm fit to fellowship with you. Now, my last last conclusion here is this. And I don't throw this on as an addendum, but I wanted to work through the psalm and then conclude with this. God's word is ultimately the revelation of Jesus himself. God is ultimately revealed in his word as himself. So you read Genesis 1 and it says God created the heavens and the earth. And you read John 1 and it says Jesus created the heavens and the earth. And you read Revelation and it says the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And you read Luke 24 and Jesus is quoting the Old Testament to those guys on the road to Emmaus. And he says the scriptures speak of me. If we read our Bibles and we don't see Christ, we've missed the main point. The scriptures are always about revealing God himself in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus is ultimately meant to be seen as God's perfect work in creation. The new heavens and the new earth formed from the seed that is the resurrected life of Jesus. He came in the incarnation, but is in his resurrection. It says he is the first firstborn from the dead. Jesus in himself is God's perfect creation. We won't see that fully until the new heavens and earth are here. He's God's perfect revelation. John 1, not only in the first few verses, John 1, 14, when it says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth has been revealed through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the representation of the Father, and he's the perfect man, as Romans 5, 18 says. So when we're reading in God's word, the Psalms or any place else, Jesus is the subject of God's word. He's the object to which we're drawn. To know him is to know God and God's word and God's revelation. The epistles are clear. Jesus is clear. John the Baptist is clear. If we reject Jesus' person and work, we cannot know the Father. The person that says they know God and rejects Christ, whether they know it or not, they're lying to themselves because it's an impossibility. We come to the Father through the Son. To be ignorant of Jesus is to walk in spiritual darkness, to exist but not live, and to live in Christ's orbit through faith is to have all that can qualitatively be called life. So as you think about Psalm 19 in the future, we want to bless the Lord for His perfect work in creation. We want to bless the Lord for His perfect work in His Word. And we want to bless the Lord for His perfect work in process in us and that one day, right, when we see Christ, we will be fully and only what God has always meant us to be. But we're in that process of transformation even now 
And it's occurring as you and I give ourselves to the truth of God and the presence of God through his word. So stand with me, if you would, and the worship team will come up and let's read the concluding verses there from Psalm 19. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.